Father, again, we've been singing and acknowledging your worthiness. We've been looking forward to the final day of your redemption. Someday we will be face to face with you. We know, Lord, in the meantime, there are many disappointments, many failings, many struggles in our hearts, and many times, Lord, when we will be tripped up in sin. And so, Father, today I pray that you would help us to see you as one who is able to restore, one who is able to lift up those who are cast down, one who is able to inspire and give hope and encouragement and joy through the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Father, that you are the God who seeks and saves those who are lost, those who have gotten caught in sin, and those who are in need of help. And so, Father, through this passage of your word, we pray that you might instruct our hearts and point us to Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. One of the benefits of preaching through the scriptures by means of expository preaching That is, we go through a book of the Bible, we go from where we were last week to following on this week. And so, just a quick reminder of where we were last week. We're at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 in the book of Galatians. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to find your way there. And we sought to understand what does it look like when someone is following the leading of the Holy Spirit. When the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit to a heart of someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ, we raise the question, what kind of changes are going to be evident in that person's life over time? What outward and inward changes ought we to expect in the life of a Christian who is following the lead of the Holy Spirit? And last week, we noticed at the end of chapter 5 that there is some very obvious indicators that the Holy Spirit, when he applies the gospel to the heart of a believer, one thing is he's going to impact that the, the believer's view of himself. That how we view ourselves is going to be changed by the gospel. Because the gospel always will work diligently to confront various forms of pride. When we have an elevated view of ourselves, and it affects the way in which we're dealing with looking at other people, The Spirit of God wants to see the gospel apply that to our hearts and help us in that struggle. And some people like are facing struggles with feelings of inferiority and they look at other people as being elevated above them. The gospel helps them in dealing with their views of proper understanding of who they are in Christ. On the other hand, those who look down on other people from a position of superiority, the gospel helps bring them down so that they can look at their brother and sister in the proper way. Uh, You you can listen to last week's sermon on some of those things. We we dealt with that last week. But the gospel, as we look further on, verse 26 of chapter 5, we notice that the Holy Spirit also impacts our view of other believers. You see, the gospel declares that Jesus bore the burden of our sin on that cross. And that gospel serves to motivate us and motivate our hearts to get involved with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the gospel calls the people of God to a shared life in Christ in the local church. Now, I don't have with me here today, but years ago I had one a, 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 a bicycle rim. So if you got your notes in front of you, you want to just make a circle about the size of a quarter, let's say, or even a little bit bigger, a half dollar. You make a circle on your notes. If you make a center 
hub in the middle of that circle, like the hub of a, of a bicycle rim, and you take the, the different spokes as they come in and you draw a line on the outward circum, uh, the circumference or the rim of that, of that um, bicycle rim, you take it and make it come into the hub. They are farther apart on the outside, but the closer they get to the hub, these individual spokes get closer to each other. And I used to have a bicycle rim. I threw it away. I was cleaning out my study one day. I'm like, get all this junk out of here. But I used to hold it up as an illustration saying that a person, the closer we get to Christ, if Christ is the hub, if we find our life in Christ, the closer I get to Christ, guess what? The closer I'm going to get to other believers. The more it begins to draw me into their lives to become concerned with what's happening in their hearts and their lives, I'm not just wrapped up in my own little world, my own concerns, my own life. And so Paul says there, we start seeing some one-anothering going on in chapter 6 at the beginning of verses of that chapter, bearing each other's burdens and those kinds of things. So anyone who says they're a serious follower of Jesus Christ who claims to be led by the Holy Spirit, I would challenge them to say, let's see the evidence of that manifested in the local church by you saying, I am a member of this church professing Christ as my Lord, and I'm living it out in the context of these people. That's really what Paul is envisioning here in chapter 6. So, the love of God is going to motivate me to see and become concerned with the heavy burdens that my brother and sister in Christ might be bearing. They don't bear those burdens alone. Praise God for that. All Christians will continue to struggle with various burdens until Christ comes. And one of those burdens is obviously sin. If you look at chapter 5, verse 17 of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 17, he mentions that our flesh, that is our fallen sinful nature, that we still retain even though we're Christian, our flesh is in conflict with the desires of the Spirit. There's an enmity going on there. And the result of that is, verse 17, we do what we do not want. That is, a believer, when following the lead of the Holy Spirit, They're going to see that there are people around them and they themselves are going to find themselves drawn to do things that we really know full well that's not what we should be desiring, but that's what I do anyway. And so therefore, what do we do about that? What do we do when we find a brother or sister in Christ and they've fallen into some sort of trespass? And the whole theme of this morning's message is to consider chapter 6, verse 1, the ministry of restoration that's to go on within the context of the local church under the direction of the Holy Spirit who is working among his people in this wonderful ministry. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 6 of Galatians, page 1388 in the Pew Bible. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. I would like to suggest that we find in this one verse the answer to three questions regarding this ministry of restoration. If the gospel is to motivate us to move toward other people, well, the first thing we need to answer is, who needs the gospel-centered ministry of restoration? Who needs it? Well, let's be clear. It's Christians who need it (laughs) because Christians still sin. Christians are not immune from the struggles of the flesh. 
Now, if anybody says they've arrived at a place in their life where they say, I don't have any struggles with my flesh, or I've reached the point in my life where I've gained victory over all sin in my life, you need to be careful and remind that person to read 1 John. Because they've become somewhat uh, elevated in their view of themselves and overlooking the fact that what? Christians need spiritual care. Point, letter, point A. Christians need spiritual care. Why? Because we all still sin. We all struggle with sin. We're all blind to our sin in various ways. And there are times when we may become ensnared in sin. Now, while we know it's not right, we find that there may be times in our lives where it's difficult to break out of a pattern of sin that we've slipped into. And the compelling example of this is found right here in the, in the book of Galatians. Interestingly enough, if you back up to chapter 2, <clears throat> we read earlier, excuse me, <clears throat> chapter 2 of Galatians. <clears throat> Very interesting that where Paul <clears throat> brings up this issue, <clears throat> excuse me, of Peter. <clears throat> and he's trying to remind that Peter when he met him, that Peter had been very much changed by the gospel of grace. <clears throat> Peter had seen a dramatic change in his understanding of himself, his understanding of what it means to be saved by grace, and to realize uh, how that changes the fact that those who are non-Jewish people also are saved on the same basis of grace through Jesus Christ. And so Peter had, be- had abandoned many of the cultural prejudices that he had one time been raised to have against non-Jews. Here is Peter, having seen the gospel change his heart, his attitude toward those who did not practice all of the dietary laws and regulations that he grew up observing and being required to follow all of these different um, regulations on handle, handle food and different things. He was always told, you don't ever share a meal with somebody who doesn't follow those rules. Well, now as a Christian, he realized, that has nothing to do with the fact that this person saved by grace. I'm saved by grace. We, have, we are family. I can share a meal together with them no matter what. Well, that had taken place, but there was a problem. <laughs> People had come to town where Peter was, among some of these churches there in Galatia, and they had begun as false teachers to criticize Peter. And they began to point out to him, Peter, don't you remember all these regulations? Don't you remember all these rules you're supposed to keep? And they began to really pour it on him making him feel guilty and things. And he then began to withdraw from these various Christians. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. <clears throat> Peter, having already embraced them and shared a meal with them, now began to withdraw from them and distance himself from them. And now his former racist attitudes were starting to slip out again. He looked down on them as inferior to him. And the unity of the gospel that had created among the Jews and the Gentiles was now being ripped apart. And so Paul said, that's a serious problem. The gospel is being compromised here. <clears throat> so what did Paul do? If you look at chapter 2, verse 11, further on down in the text there, he didn't sort of dismiss it and just sort of put his head down in the sand. It was an obvious problem. Here was a leader in the church. And so then he says, says okay, so then he... He doesn't assume that somebody else is going to get involved and, and try to speak to Peter about this. He moved himself toward his brother Peter and he began to deal with the situation that Peter had slipped into sin. And he followed, Paul followed the Spirit's lead and he reminds Peter of the gospel. 
And he got involved in Peter's burden. He began to carry out this ministry of restoration. That's what he's talking about here in chapter 6, verse 1. He carried it out earlier in chapter 2. So Paul does it. He comes to Peter expressing his love for him and the other members of the church by correcting Peter and redirecting him back into the gospel, gospel thinking, gospel practice, and the kind of life that he was meant to live in unity with his fellow believers. Now here's a very important quote in your notes. I want us to highlight this understanding regarding this issue of a ministry of restoration. Many of us already know this, but I believe it bears repeating. The church of Jesus Christ is a hospital for sinners. It is not a museum for sinless saints. There's a big difference. What that means is, if we will admit that the, hosp- the church is a hospital for sinners, it means that we are constantly having to give out doses of the gospel to, to all of us, even when we're Christians. Not to mention people who are not Christians. We all need the gospel. We continue to need the gospel. Why? Because our hearts have so many different struggles with sin. And we have, as Calvin said, our hearts are like a factory that makes idols. And so we're constantly having the struggle of heart idols and getting caught up in various sin, sinful thinking, sinful desires, and sinful beliefs. And so here comes someone like Peter. He's got a resume. He's got highly respected name and recognition among all the people in the church. He's, he's known to be servant in leadership in the early church. He gets tripped up. Even Peter gets tripped up into some sort of... His flesh begins to take... Uh, control and he's out of fear out of feeling like he's not fitting in or whatever it was the guilt that they began to make him feel he slipped into this sinful thought and pattern how much more are you and i vulnerable to losing sight of the gospel none of us is immune from being caught in a trespass and one often the one who is caught in sin is the one who lacks the strength inner strength, or he'll lack the motivation to break out of that compromised position. Because sometimes we become defensive or we become blind to the things that go on. So our hearts are susceptible to all sorts of sins. And therefore, I just want to say again, we shouldn't be surprised with Christians who struggle with sin. Sometimes that seems shocking to some people. But again, notice what Paul's saying here. He's assuming that When the Spirit of God is working in people's lives, it's going to be motivating them to get involved in what? Helping another brother or sister who is caught in a sin. And so our hearts indeed may and actually do get caught up in sins like greed or jealousy or bitterness or sexual lust or stealing or even to the point of breaking away from the fellowship of the people of God and no longer gathering with believers, Hebrews chapter 10, forsaking the assembling together. All these kind of things can happen among a person who's a follower of Christ. And Jesus understood that as well. In Matthew 18, Jesus addresses the fact, he says, there's an issue where a brother or sister, he's implying here and understanding that to mean in the context of a church because he talks about telling it to the church. A brother or sister is sinning And they're getting entangled in sin. He's assuming that's going to happen. That's why he gave instruction about it. The question then is, 
What response will we make toward those who need the help? The fact is, any of us could be involved in being caught in sin. It happens, and therefore we shouldn't be shocked and surprised. That brings us to our second point then. What does gospel-centered restoration involve? What does gospel-centered restoration involve? Now, before I move further into this verse, verse 1 of chapter 6, I want to pause just for a second because I have a feeling, I have a sense that some of you are sitting here going, now, wait a minute. How can I confront another believer? Who am I to get involved in somebody else who's gotten caught in sin? Who am I to judge my brother or my sister? Let me back up and let me speak to that just for a second because I think that some of us have grown up breathing and absorbing and being caught up in a worldly kind of thought pattern that says that love means you let people do whatever they want. Whatever they feel like is good for them, you just sort of let it, let it go and don't, don't make waves. That's what some people have assumed love means. And some of us have bought strongly into the philosophy, and we're committed to the philosophy, of mind your own business. Just keep things to yourself. Don't get too involved with other people. Just keep your distance and everything will be fine. But I would argue based on this verse and other many other verses within the New Testament, the gospel response that we are called to make to a brother or sister caught in a trespass is to say the gospel that's been applied to my heart in life, which means what? I need a savior. I struggle with sin. And the gospel is my remedy again and again and again. So the gospel is the remedy for my brother and sister. And therefore, he's calling me to get involved in their life in some level. A ministry of restoration. And therefore, I need to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and restore this brother or sister. To keep my distance. To sort of let people do whatever they want to do and be indifferent to others is to not follow the spirit where he's leading. It is to follow my own spirit of fear, perhaps, or following my spirit of um, reticence to take risks. Spirit-led gospel ministry always aims to restore, not destroy. Restore not destroy. Notice verse six, verse, verse one, chapter six. Restore such a one is the admonition. Now, restoring has the idea of putting something or putting someone back into its former condition. Uh, turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter one. Let me show you the same word as used in another context. Mark chapter one, page 1185 in your pew Bible. We have a an account of Jesus interacting with some of these cousins and brothers and friends who are fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And as he interacts with them, he's going along the Sea of Galilee, verse 16. Jesus sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus says, then follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Now look at verse 19. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat. What were they doing? Mending their nets. Now, that phrase mending, or the word mending, is the same word for restore in Galatians 6.1. 
in the original language. So what does it mean to mend a net? Well, I'm assuming, now I don't know exactly what it means, but it's the kind of net that they would be dragging behind them. I'm assuming that that net, which is made out of some sort of rope material, they don't have heavy-duty plastic stuff that we have now, that that kind of rope would have, at times, had holes created in it that are large enough to let what? The fish escape. Or they get something tangled up there so that it's not big enough, it's not spreading out, it's not as effective. And so what they are doing is they are mending the net, that is tying new knots in the net to reduce the amount of of, uh, opening for letting fish escape, or getting the items that are in there that don't belong in there so they can open up wider to catch more fish. The whole point is to take something that was damaged and that was ineffective and to restore it back to where it is effective again. That's what it means to restore. And gospel-motivated restoration is always directed at a brother or sister, getting them back into usefulness again in the kingdom. Some of us, unfortunately, when we hear of someone or know of someone who has caught, been caught in a sin, we respond to that brother or sister by, sadly enough, gossiping about it. Telling somebody about it. Whispering it to them. Did you hear about this? I can't believe it. This is what I heard this person did. Sometimes it's couched in a prayer request, but it's really gossiping. We haven't talked to the person. We haven't haven't heard the facts from them and know the facts exactly. Other times when people hear things like that, they condemn them. They think, oh, that's outrageous. I'll never talk to him again. I'll never have anything to do with that person again. Other people treat them as outcasts. They cut them off and have nothing, have no contact with them. But none of these are gospel responses. For example, if you're a coach of a basketball team and you have a team of players out there, we've got referees, I mean, this is significant uh, competition, and you're playing a game, and so you've got this great player on your team, but he tends to be a little bit of a hot dog. He tends to be a person that shows off a little too much. So one day in a game, he's, he takes this, steals a pass, he goes down the court, and rather than just take it and make a layup and score two points, he's going to do a spin around, all the way around, 360, uh, hang in there, and then dunk it behind him and make this slam into the basket, you know, some kind of fancy dunk. Showboating, basically. But in the process of doing that, because he was trying to show off, he didn't execute like he hoped to, He hit the rim in a weird way, came down, and his arm, all his weight came down on his arm, which was on top of his shoe. And next thing you know, what do you got? You've got a broken arm with a penetrating bone sticking out of the skin. Sorry, don't want to be too graphic here. But it's, it's a full break. Not just a fracture, a full break. Now, what do you think the coach is going to do at that point? You think he's going to ignore the injury? Say, get up, let's go. Get down there and play defense a little better. No, he's not going to do that. Do you think he's going to humiliate the player? Make a tirade in front of him? Shame him? I don't think so, not if he's a decent, good coach. He's going to do what? He's going to say, all right, call the medics. Get the, get the ambulance here. Let's take him to the hospital. Let's get a decent orthopedic doctor and let's set those bones. Let's get some screws in there. Let's get a cast on here. Now you're all awake. 
the goal being what? Get him back to where he recovers, the bone heals up, and he's useful again for the team next season. That's the ministry of restoration. Now, the Bible teaches us that in some situations, there are, there are sins that are so on the lower end of things, you just sort of cover them over with love. Some people, they just, you know, Proverbs 19.11, it is a glory to overlook a transgression. On some level, that's true on certain types of, uh, of uh, simple or uh, sins that are, don't rise to the level of being as serious as others. Some frustrations in dealing with other people, yes, it's a matter of forbearing those things. But some sins, they must be lovingly confronted and must speak into that person's life because that person has gotten stuck into something. They've gotten sidelined. They're, they've gone off the tracks in some area that's, that's going to continue on unless something's done to intervene. Some sins can't be ignored. And when we undermine the gospel of grace... Where in public, that is, it's causing a significant fallout, and there's some unreconciled state between you and the one caught in sin, those situations we obviously are not called to humiliate or embarrass our brother. The motive must be to restore. Restore. And so Jesus says in Matthew 18, the reason to come talk to the brother where there has been some kind of sin situation is to restore, to win your brother. And therefore to put that relationship back in order. And isn't it interesting to see how Jesus did that in his own ministry? Here he has Peter, again, a very vocal spokesperson, the one who was seen as being the real leader among them. Here's Peter on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He's, he's now been arrested. He's taken to Caiaphas, the high priest's house, and there's a courtyard there, and Peter's tagging along. And people say, Don't, aren't you one of those guys following him? Aren't you one of those followers? And he denies it once, denies it twice, threatening the guy, denies it three times, cursing, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. He fails miserably. He gets what? Caught in a sin. The sin of fear. The sin of being afraid of what's going to happen if he did say he was loyal to Christ. And what did Jesus do to him after the resurrection? We've talked about this a number of times. John chapter 21. If you've never read it, you need to read that and think through what Jesus is doing with Peter. He asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Why is it three times? I can't help but think it's significant to go with the three denials of Peter. And each time after Peter responds, and he's getting a little more concerned about the questions that keep coming to him, he doesn't understand what Jesus' real objective is. Jesus said to him, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. What's he saying? He's restoring him to usefulness. He's saying, I've died for you. I've raised, been raised to life for you. I've, you're forgiven. Get out there and minister on my behalf. You're forgiven. And so the point here is that indeed there there are times where we are going to struggle with sin. There are people who are going to get caught in sin. And the question is, where do you run after you've sinned? Some people after that, like Peter, they think, I'm done. My sin is so great I can't get past it. There's no hope for me. I, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to do anything again. They've lost sight of Christ. Uh, many of you, uh, unfortunately, were um, missed out on an excellent Sunday school class we had in the previous hour as our brother uh, Kyle Cavanaugh walked us through some helpful principles from a book which I commend to you to read, Gospel Treason. Gospel Treason, it's, not, it's a weird title, but it's about 
idols of our hearts, struggles and ways in which we've treasured something other than Christ. And he asked this question in this book. What do you think and where do you run after you've sinned? So many Christians lack good biblical answers for that question. It's robbing them of joy and usefulness in God's kingdom because they get bogged down and they waste their time beating themselves up every time they sin. Instead of running to the cross and soaking again in the marvelous light of the gospel, they sit mired in their own perfectionistic standards, bemoaning the fact that they failed again. Remember this, Brad Bigney writes, your failure is never a surprise to God. I'm going to let that sit out there for a moment. Your failure is never a surprise to God. That's why Christ died. (laughs) We all need a Savior. And then he gives, in another quote in this chapter, with people who, again, have created the idol in their hearts of thinking they have to save themselves, be their own saviors. Oswald Chambers wrote this quote. I'm sorry I didn't have in your notes. I just came across it here. This is one of the clearest statements Oswald Chambers written. I'm sorry, Oswald Chambers talks right over my head. I can't understand half of what he says, but this is a good one. God is not after perfecting me to be a specimen in his showroom. He is getting me to the place where he can use me. I will repeat that again. Oswald Chambers. God is not after perfecting me to be a specimen in his showroom. He is getting me to the place where he can use me. And that's why there is a ministry of restoration in the church. God uses your brother and sister to help preach the gospel to each other, to help Get us back on course, remembering who Christ is and what he's done for you and for me. I want to just take a moment. I want to digress just for a second and think about how this would play out in the life of those of us who are fathers. You know, you can apply this principle of the idea of ministering in the church. You can apply it to the ministry of your family. I would say, particularly for those of us who are fathers, there are times when we as fathers will discover, not a few times, but many times, that one of our kids has been caught in sin. We see it clearly. We see it up close. We see that defiant spirit evidence itself. We see a, a pattern of repeated lying. We obviously see our kids struggle with, with uh, sexual lust and pornography in our day. And dads, I would just say, I encourage you, don't be passive at this point. Don't ignore your children's sins. Don't assume they're going to figure out the best way to overcome some of their heart struggles. We need to move toward our children in love. We need to act upon the gospel, engage them in the ministry of restoration. They may, you may need to find someone else who can help them in that attempt, in that specific ministry. There are some times that we as parents are not always the best person that can help our children with some struggles they have. But we don't turn a blind eye to it, nor do we act so shocked that our child may struggle with a sin. Please don't ever do that. Don't act shocked that your kids struggle with sin. Because what are you saying to them? That you don't? That you're beyond sin? I mean, that's that's the worst message you can send to anybody. No, they struggle with sin, so do I. We're in the same 
category, my friend. We're all strugglers with sin. We're all people who've gone astray. We all need a Savior. That's what we say. Don't be surprised if your child is reticent or uncomfortable to deal with sin issues, of course. But I would say this. Pray that God, by His Spirit, will so work in your character as you apply the gospel to your life again and again, chapter 5 of Galatians, that the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit means your child would be willing to listen to you if you have something to offer to them. A word of encouragement, a word of help, a word of caution, a word of instruction on how to respond to some issues that might be going on in their life. And again, I would just say, as dads, I have failed in this area. There is no perfect father in these areas. We all have dropped the ball on some level. But it's something to be praying about, something to be saying, Lord, by your spirit, help me to see the moments that I can begin to respond and that I might be an agent of restoration in my children. Children who may fail, children who struggle, children who need to know the hope of Christ, who is a Savior, who is full of mercy and full of grace. Well, that leads me to my final point here. Um, Much much other things we could be saying here, but uh, third point is, how do we carry out this gospel-centered ministry of restoration? Please don't take point number two and start running with it unless you really take a time to ponder uh, point number three. Because this ministry of restoration is never going to be effective if it is being carried out by a person who tends to be a legalistic hypocrite. A person who keeps a long list of rules and has all these long rules and a person who doesn't live up to all those rules because the rules are impossible to keep. You see, the problem is if if we magnify the faults of other people, if we look down on other people condemning them for their failures in their life, their moral failures and moral struggles, and if we are a people who... um, tend to condemn people for those failures, my friends, you shouldn't be involved in the ministry of restoration. Because what you're bringing to this situation is going to never restore them. It's going to alienate them. It's going to disillusion them. It's going to anger them and offend them. That's why Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So very clearly, point A, I mean, it's so obvious. I'm not finding anything in the text that's not there. I'm just telling you what's here. Gospel-centered ministry restoration is carried out by those who are spiritual. Spiritual people. Spiritual people. What does that mean? Well, some of us think, oh, it's going to spiritual people. Well, that, that disqualifies me because I don't walk on water and I'm not a person that leaps, you know, uh, over buildings with a single bound. But I would argue that what Paul is saying here is he's saying that ordinary Christians who follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, who is applying the gospel to their hearts and lives in a transformative way, chapter 5 of the fruit of the Spirit, those are the people who are spiritual people. And they are followers of Jesus who have been keeping step with the Spirit. Spiritual people are not necessarily elders, not necessarily deacons, although that we hope that they are those kind of people. But they're people who don't have to be leaders in the church. Spiritual people have hearts that have been transformed by the gospel, which has begun to take effect in their hearts in such a way that they've begun to be changed as the Spirit of God applies the gospel in a number of ways, bringing them to what? Be humble, teachable, sensitive to those kind of issues, and aware of what the Spirit of God has said in His Word in a wonderfully 
practical way. Now, I know that some of us are reticent to take up the ministry of restoration. And Paul's saying here, if you are a person who is sensitive to these things, if you're a person who's, who's being led by the Spirit, then you should move forward. You don't have to have a long list of qualifications to go to seminary and have all No, no. You're a spiritual person. That is, you're a person who's led by the Spirit. Now, others of us, on the other extreme, some are too reticent, some are too eager. Some people just love to go after people and give them a real, you need to really hear this, and I'm going to give you a mouthful of all kinds of biblical challenge and correction. Some of us have no problem pointing out the sins of others. And to those who move too abruptly, or those who may be tempted to to come with an abundance of eagerness to move toward that person who's gotten caught in sin, Paul reminds them that the ministry of restoration is to be taken carried out by those whose character bears witness that the Spirit of God has been working in them, and the evident one characteristic, he says, I want to see gentleness in that life. Point B, gentleness. Now, where do you get this idea of gentleness and the Spirit of God? Do you see the connection here? The gentleness is found in chapter, verse 23, chapter 5. And if you write in your Bible, I would encourage you, circle gentleness in verse 1 of 6 and take a line and connect it to chapter 5, verse 23, and show. He's trying to show the connection of the Spirit of God at work in somebody's life here. And that the beginning of that fruit of gentleness is evident in the ministry of restoration. Before we approach someone caught in sin, the Holy Spirit must first apply the gospel to our own hearts. Reminding us, reminding ourselves that Jesus has already dealt with me in gentleness in the gospel. Jesus has come to me as his enemy. He's come to me as one who's gone astray. He's come to me as one who's foolish, who has gone his own wicked ways. He's come to me and said, I love you. I've died for you. I want to give you life, eternal life. I want to restore you back to where you ought to be through my grace. And so because of thinking through how Christ has dealt with us, it affects how we move to other people. And therefore, Jesus, because he did not demean us in our sin, he does not stand over us and wag his finger at us, give us a long lecture, shaming us. He does not approach sinner with unmerciful criticism. Jesus exhibits mildness in his dealings. Mercy and grace come to us in the gospel. And rather than approaching me with condemning words, leaving me without hope, leaving me despairing, Jesus calls me as one who admits that I'm weary, I'm heavy laden with my sin, and he says, come to me. I'm gentle. I'm humble. Come and learn of me. Come and put my yoke around you. Come and learn my ways. I'm going to give you hope and a new life, eternal life. In Christ we find compassionate mercy shown to everyone who surrenders to his yoke, shown to everyone who will admit their need for forgiving grace. May I encourage you to read Matthew 11, the end of that chapter, and just meditate on that. Think about how Christ has dealt with you in the gospel. That will help us become gentle people in dealing with those who need to be restored. In this way, the gospel then develops a proper attitude to help us in carrying out this ministry of restoration. So how do you respond then when someone you know gets caught in sin? 
Do you react with judgmental statements? Do you shun them? Or do you sit down with them? Do you listen to them in their struggles? Do you try to understand the issues of their hearts? Not just the outward fruit of their sin, but what's driving it? What do they believe? What's going on in their hearts? Do you offer them biblical insights? Do you offer to pray with them? And do you pray for them? That's the kind of response that comes with one who is gentle, seeking to restore. If the person that we're trying to restore perceives that our approach toward them is overshadowed by anger or impatience or even worse yet, annoyance. Like, oh, here we go again. I mean, do you think that person's likely to want to heed and, and move toward being restored to usefulness again when you when you have that kind of reaction? They're less likely to heed any of our admonitions or our suggestions or our concerns. All restoration ministry must be carried out in accordance with the Spirit's leading, with gentleness, mildness, and dealing with a person who needs to be restored. I think that's wise also as parents. It doesn't mean you don't discipline your children, but it does mean that how you approach them makes all the difference. So often in the person wanting to hear what you have to say about what it is that they're struggling with. Paul's very wise, and he offers another wonderful insight here. And this, with this, we'll conclude. One more important attitude that's going to help us in our likelihood of being successful in ministering to others in a restorative way is the issue of a hard attitude of humility. Isn't it interesting how pride is such a, a hindrance to ministry and humility is such a wonderful uh, character trait that opens the door for significant ministry. He says, each one looking to yourself, not looking at that other person and magnifying their sin, look to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Probably tempted to be proud, number one, or to compare yourself or to become so quick to judge and size this person up. If we approach other people assuming that we will never get caught up in that sin that they've gotten caught in, we're exhibiting the same very thing that the gospel is supposed to eliminate. Chapter 5, verse 26, conceit and arrogance. Vainglory, thinking that we're beyond something. As we approach our brother or sister caught in sin, we must do so knowing that we are vulnerable to any and every sin. If you don't know that, if you don't believe that, I would challenge you to understand you don't understand the depth of the wickedness of your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. We're not to look down on other people, wonder how their heart could be drawn away and enticed by some particular sin. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. I'll conclude with this very helpful verse on the issue of humility. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, page 1364 in your pew Bible. Having discussed and listed a number of ways in which the children of Israel got caught in sin again and again and again. Paul realizes, well, I don't want you people to get, get to where you think you're beyond all this yourself. He goes on to say this. Let him who thinks he stands 
take heed that he does not fall. What's he saying? He's saying, well, the gospel reminds us not to get all puffed up by pride and think that you are at a status of which you will not struggle with a similar sin someone else is struggling with. Don't assume that. You should say, apart from the grace of God, I'm in the same shoes you are, my friend. And the same gospel that's given me hope and helped me and encouraged me is the same gospel I want to share and give to you. Because everything that we have, any successes that we've ever seen in our life, in any way, any escape that we've done from temptation, cannot be attributed to, well, I'm smarter than you are, or I'm stronger than you are. It is another indication that the grace of God has been working in your heart and life. And the gospel, by the Spirit of God, is helping you along in a way that's been life transformative. Let's pray. Before I pray, I just want to say, perhaps there's some here today who feel like they've been you're struggling because you know you are caught in a sin. And you know that you've full well gone astray. You know that you're not walking according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know that there's areas of your life where you, the Spirit of God has been convicting you. And you know there's a need to become delivered from that and break away from that to see a, a change from where you are. Let me just say to you, God can help you. God can meet you where you are. The Christ who died for you on that cross is the Christ who is raised from the dead and has power to change you and transform your life. And so I today want to speak to anyone who's here today saying, you're wondering if there's ever hope for you. You're wondering if there ever can be change. You're wondering if you can ever find grace to get past where you are. I say to you, yes and amen. In Christ Jesus, that is true. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Humble yourself. Jesus says, come to me all your weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And so I urge you to do that. But Jesus also says, take his yoke upon you and to learn of him. And I believe that includes the fact that we become part of his community. We become part of others who are similarly following Christ. So I encourage you to make your concerns known. Acknowledge your sin to somebody else. Admit your need for help. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your need for the gospel to be applied to you and helping you in your struggle. And if you're someone who knows someone who's struggling and you've been resisting getting involved in that, I urge you today to humble yourself and ask forgiveness. And may the gospel motivate all of us to be those who want to restore, not to destroy, those anyone who's caught in a sin. Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, help our church family to be a family that is like a hospital for sinners. Help us, Lord, not to act like all of us have our act together here in this church. Help us to to know that it's safe to admit that we struggle in this church. And that there is a gospel gospel hope and help for all of us who are here today. To those who have never come to Christ, Lord, we thank you that there is hope for new life. There's hope for a new beginning. There's hope for full and complete forgiveness of sin in Christ. I pray today, Lord, you would work in their hearts to draw them to Christ, that they would come in repentance and true faith to Christ and him alone. 
And Lord, to those of us who are called to be involved in the ministry of restoration, I pray that you give us a heart of love, a heart of compassion, true gentleness in our spirits. And Lord, keep us from being arrogant, proud people that look down on others and act shocked when they confess sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be compassionate, humble, understanding of the amazing grace that's brought us to where we are. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.